Hey guys, it's Tony Russo from the So What's Your Story podcast. Before we get the show started, Stephanie and I just wanted to take a second to thank you so much for all of your support of both us and DPR over these last two seasons. And we want to tell you how much we're looking forward to the third season. Um, this is one of the few places where you get to hear local authors talk about why they do what they do. And, you know, a lot of us make a living at writing, but many of us just do it because we love to do it and we make sure that we find the time and we put a lot of effort into it. And it's just so satisfying to hear people tell why they committed so much of their life and effort to paper and to telling stories that they think that their neighbors would like to hear and maybe the wider world would like to hear. So that's it's just a lot of fun, and we just want to thank you guys for joining us. We also want to take a second to talk about podcasting in general because we have an association with a couple other shows that are produced here locally, and we think this is the year that people are going to start really listening to even more podcasts. So if you want to hear some locally produced podcasts, there's, of course, So What's Your Story, which can be found on iTunes. There's also Life at the Beach, it's a show where Todd DeHart and I talk about the big questions facing people on vacation and off vacation, people who live here year-round and people who just show up on the weekends and people who do something in between. Um, and there's also, of course, the Beer with Strangers podcast, which we'll be relaunching in January. And that's interviews with craft brewers from all over the country and then conversation about news and updates in the craft beer world. So if you're interested in any of that, you can find it all on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, if you go to the So What's Your Story page, you'll see not only the link to this podcast, but links to the other associated podcasts. So take a look at those if you if you have a chance and uh, batten down and listen to some great podcasts over the winter and enjoy the show. It interests me, too, the, the idea of story, of myth, and of the various ways they can be seen, because a lot of, there's been a lot of um, poetry written, contemporary poetry written to revise women's poems, or women's place in poems, and I didn't know of anybody who'd worked with a New Testament. That's why one reason I... I went for that. But, you know, you tell a story and it seems true. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have poet Becky Gold Gibson, who just won the Dogfish Head Poetry Prize. Her collection, titled Indelible, earned her a cash prize of $500, publication by Broadkill River Press, and two cases of Dogfish Head Craft Beer. And she's here today to chat with us about her poetry and the prize. So welcome to the podcast. Thank Becky. you very much, Stephanie. Well, I'm delighted to have you here. Um, Linda Blasky sent me sort of a, the rough draft of Indelible, and so I had a chance to give a, give a read before today. Right. And I was just fascinated by the work. Um, Good. Tell me why. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I felt, um, you know, as I was reading the work, there. first, as I'm a storyteller by nature, and so I felt like as I was moving through, there was sort of this, we were sort of on this journey with, with this lady. And, you know, the there were these very strong images that sort of just struck with me. And I, we, we just interviewed Shara McCallum, who was the judge, mm -hmm. and I remember in that podcast saying to her, there was one image that I don't know that I'll ever forget, and it was when 
the mother was seeing the her words being written down on the paper and mm -hmm. she likened them to ants getting ready to sort of fall off the edge mm -hmm. and i thought that was such a beautiful image and i and i told shara shara I'll, I'll never forget that but would you tell us a little bit about how you came to pick this particular subject it's very interesting. I almost hate to admit it, but my husband got me <coughs> interested in an article in Atlantic about Paul, St. Paul, and the early church, and it was about Paul being an entrepreneur and actually a, a marketer for the new, the new um, religion. And he met a woman called Lydia in, um, in Philippi. And so it's there's just... A very brief mention of Lydia in one part of Acts, in chapter 16, and I went to that because I'm very interested in historical women and trying to bring them to life. Often there is, they don't leave any historical record, they don't leave words uh, of their own, and so I got interested in that. And I was also very interested in the idea that Paul was a marketer for, for this new religion. So I went and I did all kinds of research. Now she may or may not have existed. Um, the more I read, the more I realized that she could have been not a historical woman at all, but sort of a composite of women that, that the early church wanted to put into their propaganda mm. to get people interested in this, this, new, this new religion. So, so I approached it in several different ways. And the, what interests me about the book is that I was... I was very much wanting to make it a book of letters, like Paul's letters to the Philippians. Well, these are these are the Lydian woman's letters to her mother in Theatira, which is in Anatolia, um, to Paul himself, who was traveling around preaching the word, to Junia in Rome. So she's speaking to through letters to people of her day, but I was also, as a woman thinking about women in that time, wanting very much to get a contemporary view of that event, of those people, and of that religion over the centuries, not just then. Mm. So I came up with this kind of strange um, conceit, which is to have the woman both alive at the time and also alive 20 centuries later. Somehow she's speaking to visitors to... Philippi, and I think I had a lot of fun with that. Just a whole <laughs> lot of fun with that. She's speaking to they come to they come to interview her, just like the way you're doing. And you know, Ms. Magazine comes, and they want to know well, what's Paul. What was Paul really like? You know, <laughs> right. was he married? Um, did you fall in love with him? And those kinds of things. I'm trying very much to humanize and to bring down to earth something that gets. Is, is very serious stuff, but it's made to be so sacred and so serious that sometimes it seems out of reach. And that was a lot of my object. Now I answered way more than you asked. <laughs> no, that's perfect. <laughs> well, no, we, we love that. There is this thing that we keep returning to with poets when we interview them anyway is yours <clears throat> seems so narrative Mm -hmm. I want to ask how you chose poetry over narrative. You are asking a question that I wonder every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and people have asked me, do you write fiction? 
are you going to write novels next, like poetry is a step toward right. a novel? Um, I am a storyteller, and I do it in verse because I love the sound of words a lot. Mm-hmm. But my poems tend to be narrative. A lot of them tend to be stories, and I just can't help it. But stringing them together like this is what is what we, again, I obsess over a little bit because it, there is this kind of almost like this miracle of, this and this and this and this all add together to make they they stand independently and they also it's like a collection of essays that ends up being about just the one thing right i love the idea of of making something itself but also making it part of a whole that has a kind of synergy right to <laughs> quote the, the now poli- political word um with the other things around it. And I was interested in the narrative of the first century and having it sequential. It begins with um, the woman having being baptized by Paul. It ends really, it, that's around 50 CE, and it ends with the narrative of what we believe was the, the persecution and killing of, of the community by Nero. But I didn't want, the interesting thing about narrative is that I didn't want the story to be prominent because that story is already told. I wanted the story to be of her her coming into an awareness of how she feels about this faith. And it takes her 20 centuries to come. I mean, she's still trying to figure out Mm. whether she's a believer or not. Right. And so that's where it really touches me because I, you know, I sat in church and I tried as hard as I could to understand this. And I feel like it's 20 centuries later and I still don't, <laughs> I still don't get it. So there's that. But there's also the, maybe it's called a narrative of what I call the intervals, which are the present day mm. strand of action. And those are really not supposed to be much of a chronology or much of what you would call a linear narrative, they are more, they work more through image and they work more through juxtaposition and they work more through simply putting one thing next to another and seeing if it kind of goes into the next one. And this was the most challenging and also the most interesting part of the writing for me because I didn't want it to come off as just a story. Mm. I wanted it to come off as a poem that was continually surprising with the 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 um the image flow and the the flow of words they fit together but they don't fit get fit together in in sort of a just a usual way and so that took a lot of doing i think so and i think one of the things that as you've been talking and and also thinking about the work is that you start with sort of ancient women and bringing them into modern day but modern day, the, the, the image, the concept, the being a woman today, you know, I, I, think use, I think that was an interesting juxtaposition of the ancient woman and the modern woman. You know, in, in today's we have the Me Too movement, you know, we have women really stepping up. We have, you know, not women stepping up, but we have women who are, you know, we have more women in Congress today. And, and so there are, I think, this notion that, you know, it's taking that long to to move well the the interesting thing about history one of the interesting things about history is it's not linear and progress is not linear because in the early church the word is that 
the first century women, the first part of the first century for sure, were working alongside the men. They were deacons, they were apostles, and Paul was working with women on an egalitarian basis. This is what we hear. This is what we read from the early, the early documents. So in a sense, there was a regression. In the, in the second century, this happened not just in um, this part of the world. It also happened in England where the Christianity gets somewhat entrenched, and then there is a backlash against women getting any power. And that's a story that's told more than, more than once. So the poor, Lydia at one point, or the Lydian woman says at one point, um, you know, it's, you, the church has failed you, Paul. The church has failed you because we don't have the women deacons. We don't have the ordained ministers that you would have thought, given your openness to women at mm. the time. And so that's, to me, very interesting that Paul was not as anti-feminist as he's been depicted. The guy was actually probably pretty ahead of his time when it came to working with women. That was part of the thing, one of the things I found out that I found really interesting that I wanted to be clear in this work. So. To just because of where we are um, and because of what I do, because my, my books have been about beer, um, when I was— people would ask, well, how come there's nothing in the history books about women making beer? And I'm like, well, there's also nothing in the history books about women baking bread or sweeping the floor. It was just one of the chores that was done. And then once there was money to be made, we don't need women in this anymore. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> but the women were the home, that was the cottage industry. Women were doing the beer making, right? Yes, absolutely. And, and along with a lot of other things. <laughs> <laughs> but, once, but, but once it became more of a public function, like, we need to we, we need once once there was an industrial aspect to it that's when the, the that's when the men came in and i'm not saying precisely that there was an industrial aspect to it but once it was a job like when you put a job title on it clearly a woman can't do it and you have to have a guy to and do money's it. involved there's exchange of money there's a hierarchy and that often leaves women out because they were felt to belong at home well if they're at home they can be making beer all they want but <laughs> Don't get them in a, you know, in a, in a corporate setting. <laughs> You're listening to So What's Your Story? And this week we're speaking with poet Becky Gould Gibson, winner of the 2018 Dogfish Head Poetry Prize. So let's, let's talk a little bit about um, winning the prize and the decision to mm -hmm. submit because there's so many places to submit and there's so many opportunities. And there's this kind of sense that you need to submit all over the place. So how did you decide to submit to this? Well, it, it's interesting. This, of course, was not the first time I've submitted this particular work and it's been in fact it's gone through several titles it's you know just this is a fairly recent title um, you make a decision based on gut feel and what is available there may be a lot of opportunities for for writers to publish this way but there are a whole lot more writers than there are opportunities right. <laughs> so it's 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 a hard it's a hard thing to do so I've I figured, okay, first of all, I thought it was kind of funny to be published by a beer maker. I liked that. It was just quirky. Right. And also, they didn't ask for um, a submission fee. And I thought, well, that's, that's nice. That's a change of, change of things. And maybe these people actually have money to publish without, you know, scrounging. And this is a good thing. 
I also talked to last year's winner at a reading, just happened to meet her, and she said, their editors are really good. And so I thought, well, this is a serious place, and this will, they will work with me. That's a huge, huge thing. You can have a big press or and still not get the kind of careful work. Jamie Brown, I'd just like to say a word about Jamie Brown. He's really good, and he's extremely patient and stays with it, stays with the work. And this was not an easy one to set up. Mm. So, yeah. So those are the reasons. I mean, the prize, the prize money was fine. Winning beer was fine. <laughs> but it was, it was just sort of the quirkiness and just, okay, well, I haven't. Haven't tried dogfish. Let's try dogfish. That's interesting. To can you talk a little bit about the editing process, like going back and forth, and what that was like? Yeah, basically, um, Jamie did not come in and want to change language or any of that. The language was there, but this book, um, I had had several different formats for it, but it ended up being kind of staggered on the page. It's not. It's a ragged look. Mm -hmm. I didn't want it to be blocky. real blocky, or except for the road poems, which are blocks because the road is a block. That's okay? fantastic. There are four of these, but um, so this gave Jamie and me fits. I mean, I'm sure Jamie was ready to kill me more than more than once. And finally, he said, in one of his in back and forth, extreme patience, just working very, very, very closely for weeks. And finally said, I'm an old dog, and I'm getting older. And I said, I'm an old dog, too, and probably older than you. <laughs> so we, we have this very good um, working relationship. And, of course, my husband got into that because he simply is a very, very good proofreader. So the three of us really um, did the proofing. And it, it takes it because it's... Things can escape so oh, so easily, oh, yeah. and you know it's going to be there for a while. You don't want some crazy little mistake to be in there, right? To ruin yeah. your ability to read. Yeah, it. Tony always extols the virtues of having a good editor and to be to be able to be open with an editor and to be able to have a a rapport, sort of a sort of an amalgamation into a work. It makes well, I it felt that that was happening with us, and I. I just loved the man as I as I got to know him more through, and I've not met him. Yet. I guess I'll meet He'll him tomorrow. Yeah. But um, he's he's just a he's a really good 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 editor. And we like I said I think I said earlier we just we spoke with Shara uh, McCallum who was the judge who who picked mm -hmm. your work, and she because we were saying to her you know what was it about this particular work that spoke to you, and she said she loves the notion of myth. And, mm -hmm. you know, you were talking about how this Lydian woman is potentially a composite, but we're sort of, and we don't really know if she was or who she was or, but to basically to kind of inhabit, uh, I don't want to say a lesser character, but a lesser known character mm -hmm. and to develop, as Tony was saying, sort of a narrative piece and to do that with poetry, she was sort of likening it to, I think she said, you know, like Milton's Paradise Lost, you know, <laughs> these, you know, these, these long pieces. I wouldn't quite put myself there, but... <laughs> But I think that, you know, that, that notion of the myth and the notion of telling, myth telling from a very different perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of the things about your work that, that spoke to her. And I think when you were talking earlier, 
you kind of kind of hit a little bit on that same same stride about what do we know and how do we come to know these things and do we know even what's interesting about biblical text is it's there is history there but there is a lot that is not history and you you don't know particularly in the new testament well there are four stories of jesus's crucifixion and i mean and they all differ slightly and the story of in acts i mean how much of this is actually historical how much of it was there to drum up business i mm. mean they're trying to they're trying to sell a a, a new way of seeing uh, seeing things and um I really do get that, and I thought, well, there's a pretty good connection here between selling beer and selling a religion. I mean, there's, there, it's about selling to a certain extent. Sure. Right. <laughs> but no, it's, um, it interests me, too, the, the idea of story, of myth, and of the various ways they can be seen, because a lot of, there's been a lot of um, poetry written, contemporary poetry written to revise women's poems or women's place in poems and in in stories like the old testament so there's a lot of poetry written um bringing old testament stories with women and putting them in a um in a new light and i didn't know of anybody who'd worked with a new testament that's why one reason i i went for that but you know you tell a story and it seems true it just it seems true and so who's to know what's really true and what's not? Does it even matter? If you, that, that's the thing. What, do you, what you're trying to say is what matters. The message is the truth of it is, is behind the actual fact, the facts, the so-called facts. So, yeah, and you can do that in so many ways. So I found it just really fun to try to work with all that. I actually want to ask you about this, and I wouldn't mind hearing Stephanie's opinion either, because it, when you were talking about the layout of the book mm-hmm. and your decision to have places staggered, like how is that part of the writing process, and how much is the layout is part of also the editing process? It's both, and I, as I said, this was much, much more lined up early on, and I realized, well, that's just boring, you know. And as I explained to, to Jamie when I was we were talking about the this format, which was very hard to get. Okay, how long, how far do you indent here? How, what is the margin like? What, all of that. Because line breaks mean something in poetry that they don't mean in fiction. And you know, you just can't, <laughs> you just can't go on to the next line necessarily. And I said I wanted them staggered to let light and air into the poem, into the poem, which is it's one poem, mm-hmm. um, because there's a there's got to be breathing room for the reader and even for the writer. And that's what the line breaks do and the little, uh, the indentations and the spacing and all of that. That's how I saw it anyway. So I was much happier with the the book, with the poem, when I found that technique, or at least I started working with that. And I think one of the other things that struck me, and this could just be totally incidental, but you know when we see on television uh when they find bits of people bits of paper from you know ancient times sometimes it's just a little piece of a thing mm-hmm. you know and so you'll the visual representation of like some of the lines being over here or being over here mm. almost reminded me like when they find old texts and some of it's like 
eaten away or missing, but you just have a piece here and a piece here and a piece here. And, and to know that some of the work was like, you know, one of the letters is like 50 BC. And I was like, Oh, and in my mind, I flash back to a picture, uh, you know, something of like the Dead Sea Scrolls or something where parts of it are missing. The fragment, fragments interest me a lot. And in fact, I'll put a plug in for my last book, which is called The Xantippe Fragments, and is small poems in the voice of Socrates' wife bef the 30 days before he died. Um, they are small poems, the idea being that there is a lot left unsaid around them. So these are just little mere, mere fragments. I think you can do, do that when you're playing with this material. Oh, absolutely. And so now that you've got this, do you have something that you're working on next in mind? Have, what, what, what's interesting you now? Well, th that is an interesting question because I feel like this is the third of a trilogy of similar, of similar books. Mm -hmm. And I'm done with that part of my thinking, I right. believe. The first one was of, of Hild of Whitby, 7th century abbots, and there are stories there that, that are told. Um, then Xantippe and then this one. So there's a kind of uh, wholeness about, about the group of, of books. Mm -hmm. Frankly, what I'm working on now is nonfiction, and that is a huge leap for me because I'm thinking, no, I'm a poet. I can't write nonfiction. Well, what do you think? I think maybe I will mm -hmm. <laughs> for a while and do that, and who knows what next? Who knows? But I think the richness that poetry brings, the, the richness of language that you invest into poetry is going to bleed into nonfiction, which I can imagine would, would be phenomenal. Well, that's what I'm finding is I, I've written one piece that I like so far. And what I'm finding is that there is all the opportunity for being for using image, metaphor, and all of that, but you also have more room to <laughs> explain things and not just leave them so much to chance because um, you can get really elliptical as a poem you just think what the heck is she saying but no I think it's fun it's going to be interesting it, yeah. Stephanie started the last show we recorded with that very sentence that you just spoke what is that what is <laughs> that it? she prefers to write nonfiction because she has room to stretch yeah. out into yeah a... yeah yeah you're listening to so what's your story and this week we're speaking with dogfish head poetry prize winner Becky Gould Gibson you can find out more about Becky and the prize on SoWhatYourStoryPodcast.com. I just, I feel like I need more, you know, as a non, I do essays and short stories, and mm -hmm. I feel like I just need room to really stretch out and really push and really sort of flesh out, you know, whatever it is I'm working on. And I'd love to think that I could do poetry, but I would, I think I would just find myself writing a poem that ended up into an essay. <laughs> well, and that's, it's really funny. I think poem, I think poetry and essays are closer, Ken, than poetry and fiction. And it's, I felt that way, felt that way for a long time because I think poetry and essays both are, have a theme or have a point, maybe more than a story. And they're, they're realer. They can be. I, I, I think because you, you have to even so even in what would be considered a fictional type poem in, in your in your work indelible you have this 
this reality that you're trying to communicate in a very specific in in the in the in a world that we all know not in a world that we all imagine exactly this could have happened it, it's right. not like it, it, it it's not the same as as fiction where it's it's from whole cloth you know right 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 yeah and it, it doesn't really interest me to write a, a piece of fiction and a contemporary about now but I really liked having the juxtaposition of the contemporary and the and the ancient in this book. It just it interested me to, to do that kind of oddness, I guess. And obviously it worked. Well, that's to be determined. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think when you when you're sitting on two cases of beer, I think you, I think you know for sure it won. The won't. beer makes its own case. <laughs> So What's Your Story right, was produced well, by Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Oh my gosh, Becky, Visit thank you so much for sitting down so and talking about your work with us. Where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Radio Public, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, take a second and give us a great review. Tell your story.